Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. The Spectator Australia is a weekly delight for anyone who loves insightful analysis, contentious opinion and hard-hitting comment. With the finest writing on current affairs, politics, the arts, books and life, you will read regular columnists who delight, provoke and amuse, and editorial features of incredible breadth and depth. There is no party line to which its writers abound. Originality of thought and elegance of expression are the sole editorial constraints. A digital subscription is just $16.99 a month, and you get your first month free. Sign up today at spectator.com.au forward slash join. G'day and welcome to Australiana from The Spectator Australia, a series of conversations on Australian politics and life. I'm Will Kingston. My guest today is Johannes Leek. Johannes is the editorial cartoonist for The Australian. Like his father before him, Johannes's cartoons represent the soul of the newspaper. In my humble opinion, they say far more than any editorial column possibly could. Johannes, welcome to Australiana. Thanks, Will. Great to be with you. Most uh, listeners will be aware that your father was also a celebrated artist and cartoonist. And when I think about this, it gets me thinking about the old nature v nurture question. How much of your ability and and your interest in your craft do you put down to to nature and, and how much do you put down to the time you would have spent with your father when you were growing up? Well, yeah, look, I've thought about that a fair bit myself, I suppose. And I suppose, you know, I've got a younger brother. He's three years younger than me. So you could sort of call it a kind of a controlled experiment of some sorts, you know. I'm Out of the two of us, I was the one who probably lent more towards the visual art side of things and he much more has gone down the music road and both of those things exist in my family. I mean, much more so even the music. Uh, my dad was the sort of aberration as, as the one who's, who sort of had this incredible visual aptitude and creativity. So I suppose there must be some genetic predisposition to to want to express myself through drawing and painting, but it, it was not something that he sort of sat me down and or sat sat both of us down and said here's how you do it. To be honest, he was probably too busy <laughs> to really do that, but I think growing up in a household where you just know and understand and take as completely normal that your dad is an artist and he makes his living by drawing cool things in the newspaper, making fun of people in the newspaper, painting portraits of people and and you're surrounded by it on the walls. People come and go to the house who work in, in similar areas. So it, it, it was always, to me, a sort of fairly straightforward, legitimate option, uh, you know, career option, I suppose. I, I didn't come from a family where I had to fight tooth and nail to to become an artist, you know, and I, I really respect people who who grow up in a in a situation where perhaps their parents aren't all that encouraging for them to go down that route. They'd like to see them get a secure job, and fair enough. 
but in my case, it's almost like the the obvious thing almost for me to do was probably to uh, to to want to do what my dad did because it looked like a great job to me. That's that's interesting. That's the positive side of it. Have there been any drawbacks of following in your father's footsteps? Well, I suppose it's only really dawned on me since I really stepped into his very much his previous role. I mean, I'm 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 literally doing the job he used to do at the Australian and. It probably dawned on me quite late that, you know, that would invite a lot of comparison to him. And that's sometimes something that I need to sort of try to push to to one side, I suppose. And, you know, a lot of that comes from the admiration and the awe that I have for what he did and the volume of the work that he produced, the quality of the work that he produced I find myself constantly working my way through his collection. It's one of the things that I've done since he died is sort of work to itemise his work and and get a handle on the breadth of the collection that that we've inherited. And um, it it really does. I, I'm sort of staggered uh, every time I go go looking through it. I sort of think, how did he have time to do all this? And the, his mind was sort of. I don't know. You look at the cartoons and the inventiveness and the the ideas. You know, there's just so much in there. But of course, you're looking at the body of a, of a person's work that accumulated over multiple decades, and you can get yourself into all sorts of trouble if you think, "Oh, well, I need to measure up to that." I'm at the start of my career, and I'm looking at at his body of work from the point of view of somebody. Well, looking at it at the point where he had, he had finished his. So it's it's a it's a different thing. But yeah. It, You've got to just put that out of your mind and think. Well, the, the times have changed, and and I'm working with different material and 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 all of that sort of thing. But it certainly he set the bar pretty high, and and I see that as a massive challenge to try and meet that level of of consistency. Following on from that, what were the most important lessons that you learned from him? Uh, look, I the more I think about that, the more I reckon that to be a cartoonist, at least the, the, the sort of cartoonist that he was, I think that it's actually a, it's it's really the bullshit radar <laughs> that I that I like to think I inherited from him. And it's funny because it's a sort of a double edged sword. Like you can go through life being cynical, and I am, and and I'm skeptical, and I have this bullshit radar. And it's not necessarily a great way of looking at the world because. Everywhere you look, you see it. You, you know, you're, you're sort of struck by the insincerity of, of people and, and you're looking beyond what they're saying. And, and sometimes I sort of envy people who take everything at face value and, and go through life not thinking the worst of everybody and, and not trying to, dismant, to sort of dissect everything to understand what people are really all about. But, look, this is, this is I think, part of what it takes, I think, to be a cartoonist if you're really trying to sort of go beyond what a politician is saying, what they're doing, and pull out the sort of essential truth behind what, what it is they're up to, I think that, um, that that cynicism is actually a bit of an asset. That's a lovely little line there to pull out the essential truth behind what a politician is saying, and it leads me on to the question, this is your life's work, it is, was your father's life's work, this is obviously incredibly important to you. Why are cartoons, but then more specifically editorial cartoons, political cartoons, why are they important? What role should they play in society? Look, I, I see my role at the paper. I like to think that I look look at the news and the events of the day. I try in a way to see them through the eyes of the average reader. 
because I am an average reader, I guess, too. And so what a, what a reader wants to see in a cartoon is a reflection of the way that they instinctively feel about an issue. And then for them to see it in, a, in one little frame, hopefully that sort of sums up their gut reaction to whatever it might be, that, that, that seems to be what, what resonates with readers. You know, that's what they want to see. And sometimes it can have a, a clarifying sort of effect, I suppose, for them, maybe it's maybe it really rubs them up the wrong way, which is which is not a bad thing either. It's it's a it's all part of the uh, all part of the debate, I suppose. But that's what the readers are responding to is is when they see you capture the essence of of an issue or something somebody said, or you you reveal the the, the truth behind it and, and and cut them down to size or sort of encapsulate something that these are the I think these are the things that people like to see in the cartoons and of course you know it has to make them laugh you know I mean they there's a there's a, a there's a certain response there that you cut to the chase and you get it and people love that you know yeah I agree and if I was to pick out a really interesting way that you frame that and you you I think deliberately said you want to reflect how people feel you didn't necessarily say you want to reflect how people think and that's what I see in, in your work and the work of political cartoonists more generally in they they elicit a visceral response, an emotional response, as opposed to perhaps purely an intellectual response that you would get through the written word. And that's something which a creative medium like cartoons can do in a way which which a 500-word editorial column can't do to the same extent. Yeah, look, I think that's right. At the same time, I think you, you kind of, what you're aiming to do is sort of distill an idea or a debate down into that one frame, you know, and, and you, but you are capturing what people are thinking at the same time. I think it's a bit of both, but yeah, there's, there's definitely there's something happens when, when, when people respond to a cartoon and I, I'm, I'm no psychologist, but, uh, but I'm sure that it's a case of people recognizing something, recognizing their own interpretation, seeing it, re- seeing it in a way reproduced through the eyes of somebody who happens to be able to draw and kind of, you know, move captions around and that sort of thing. And and I think people really enjoy that. Yeah, I agree. That's why I personally am fascinated by this as a craft, because you have to be part creative, you have to be part political analyst, mm. you have to be part cynical, uh, you have to be funny. It is very much this melting pot of different skills that come together and you have to distill something which is quite complicated with such clarity. I want to understand I want to understand this craft better. So uh, let's start chronologically. You you do a one cartoon a day, is that right? Oh, I'm doing three cartoons a week at the moment. Three a week. So I've cut back to three cartoons a week at the moment. I've got twin toddlers, and while they're while they're little, I I sort of pulled back a bit to to, to give me more time with them and and make sure we sort of balance thing up things up between us at home. Yeah, very wise. Well, when mm-hmm. you sit down to to draw a cartoon, what are you trying to achieve? Well, my process is uh, starts with. Starts with reading, starts with listening. You know, I'll listen to news, I'll I'll read articles. First of all, I'll sort of get my handle on what I feel, and and it's a it's a it's a sort of a continuous thing. That's one of the things that I've learned is you can't really switch off in this in this job. You need to be abreast of the developments every day of the week. So you 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 never really leave the mindset, or or you're always in the mindset a little bit of of how you know listening and and watching and and taking in what's going on, and 
you know, your brain's actively jumbling things around to try and try and make jokes, you know, trying to make cartoons up in your head. So at the end of the day, I've I've also found that to be too to dive too deep into the the detail of a lot of the, the issues and the, the politics of, of the day can actually also sometimes take you too far into yeah, into the nitty gritty. And you've got to pull yourself back and think, remember the um it's it's about gut reactions here, I, I like to think. It's sort of readers aren't expecting me to break down the detail of, of, of things. They they just want a clear, concise summary or if you like, of, 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 of things that they've been reading or issues they're interested in. So it's a, it's a combination of, you know, you have to understand the material fully, but you also need to, need to not dive into it to, to a sort of granular level where uh, you get bogged down in, in, in meaningless detail. You've always got to kind of keep that big picture and think, well, hang on, if, I, if I've just opened the paper, I, I, I want to understand something broadly and, and have that gut response, you've got to try and nail that, I think. You have your idea, or you have you have a topic. Let's say one thing which yeah. I, I I'm trying to work through in my head. Does your brain go to the creative first, what it will look like, or does it go to the to the joke or to the the concept you're trying to to build out first? What's what's the the foundation that you you work from? For me personally, and I think when I look back through my dad's work, I think we're similar in that a lot of the time the the jokes. They're often around language. In my case, I, I love clever use of language, so that is often the backbone of my cartoons. Whereas there are other cartoonists who think I, I you know, and I admire them immensely for this is that they their, their ideas, their jokes are much more visual, you know, and so there, there's a sort of a different part of the brain going on there, and and I suppose we all have to sort of do what comes naturally. But for me, and I think in a large part the way my dad worked too, was that you sort of, my, if you look at my notepad, it's the, the jokes, the cartoon ideas are written down. Very occasionally I'll scribble them out, you know, if I, if I want to get, if I'm trying to work out the best way of framing it, the, the most effective way of getting my, the action into that frame, I'll, I'll certainly go through the s- sequence of drawings to get there. But they're underpinned by, you know, a language a little, a little twist of language here, or you know, I'm very focused on getting the caption right. For me, that's something that I will go back and change through the course of the day multiple times just to get that wording spot on. And I think my dad was similar. But then, of course, you know, uh, a cartoon is not funny if it's if it doesn't look funny too. So there is this visual component to it. The caricatures have to be funny, and that's just after a while becomes second nature. The way you draw in the cartoon you know in the cartoonist's way you know there's a certain language that that we all understand is the sort of cartoon language and and of course everybody has their own twist on it but that's the that's the way you draw but yeah for me there's there's a quite often if I go back and analyze my work I think yeah look they're 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 often jokes that that could be written down with a you know with a cartoon built around them that way Mm. what are Mm. your tools how how are you actually putting this to to paper Oh, I draw direct onto a, a, a sort of drawing interface, a graphics tablet, which is like, you, you know, you're effectively drawing straight onto a screen using, you know, pretty standard drawing software, Photoshop. And over the years, I've, I, I really, in a previous work that I used to do as an illustrator, I certainly explored a whole range of tools 
available. I mean, the, the digital graphics programs are, are, are absolutely full of the most incredible tools, but I've, I've sort of pulled it right back to a sort of basic set that works for me. I like the look. I feel sometimes that when you labour the drawings too much, it takes away from the immediacy of the cartoon. So it's about a balance there too. Like you actually, I think that a drawing that happens effortlessly and, you know, that, that actually carries over to the viewer. Um, and it's much more immediate, the response. I think there are sometimes you can get bogged down if you if the detail is too lovingly, everything's too lovingly rendered. It doesn't actually add to the joke, you know. Some of, some of my favourite cartoonists can barely draw, you know. So, mm. um, but, they're, but, they're, but they get what they need to in the expressions and the drawing and sometimes the crudeness of the drawings actually adds to it for me. Mm. Yeah. So you've... you've- Put it down on, well, I was about to say on paper, figuratively on paper. Yeah. You hand it through to an editor. How would you describe the, the process of editorial oversight? I like to have a conversation with the editors fairly early in the day. I only really call them up when I've got an idea or a number of ideas to run by them. And it'll just be a phone call and I'll sort of say, look, here's what I'm thinking. You know, what do, what do you think? And, and uh, you know, is this, is this, generally speaking, it's, I tend to, you know, you've got a gut feeling of what the, the, you know, the one, two, three, four big stories of the day are and the ones that are going to be talked about the next day, hopefully on the letters page, there'll be a bit of discussion around. Now, that's always nice if you can get the cartoon to line up with the commentary the next day. So that's really, that's important. Um, You don't want to pick pick a story that most people haven't even read, you know. So it's got to be something that that you know has has legs and, and people are, people are responding to and, and engaged with and and yeah look I'll run them by the editor and they they are it's it's a it's a it's a good process I mean I I'm I'm I always know when I've got an idea that I think really works and if I haven't got one that really works I'll say listen I, these are the ideas I'm not wrapped with with where they're going so let's talk again in a few hours when I've when I've just gone away and sort of walked around the block a few times with the dog and had a bit more of a think about things so by the end of the day, there's generally no nasty surprises when I present something and the editors think, hang on, you know, I haven't seen this. I don't know what's this all about. Generally speaking, they know where I'm going with it. And if I change direction, I let them know, you know, we, we, we check in and, and make sure that we're all on the same page, so to speak. And as most people would know, that the Australian editor is a News Corp editor. Now, in, in some circles, Rupert Murdoch is akin to the devil, uh, and it goes to, to the question of how does the masthead influence the work, if at all? There's very, there's very little um, influence exerted upon, on me about what I can express in, you know, in my little frame there. So, yeah, the, the, the idea that um, Rupert Murdoch is, is, you know, on the phone to me telling me what I can and can't draw and, and all of that is, is just so ludicrous. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's hilarious. But I suppose I read the paper that I'm printed in. I, I, read the, I read the Australian. And so I'm acutely sort of across where, where we sit on things or, or generally speaking where our readers sit on things. And the truth is there's a happy sort of congruence that's naturally there. I mean, I, I think that I'm perfectly at home in the paper. The paper's not telling me how to think. I happen to think that way. And this is a conversation that I sometimes find myself having to people who are sort of incredulous that I would be taking positions on things that the readers of The Australian might take. The truth is, 
we're on the same page and and I'm I'm happy where I'm uh, you know I, I feel very much at home at the Oz and uh, and I you know that it's as simple as that it's as simple as that I don't think I'd be a natural fit at, at some other newspapers and and nor would their cartoonists necessarily be a great fit at the Oz I mean there's and and of course it's perfectly fine to have cartoonists who sort of take a different line on things than the editorial line and and every now and again I'll do that too that's just the way it works and, and there have been some great cartoonists at the Oz who, have have sort of done that. Even my dad, for a long time, took positions on things that were sort of ran ran contra, sort of contrary to the paper's position on certain things. And but that's that's also the mark of a, of a quality newspaper is it is a sort of a multitude of viewpoints and and all sort of sitting in the same paper. That's I think a healthy healthy situation. But you know, in my case, um, it seems to be a nice situation where. I share the views a lot of the time that the readers have, and so that's as, as simple as that. Mm. Let's zoom out to the arts more generally. You are a celebrated artist in addition to your day job. I, I'm reflecting on the arts generally in 2023. Is it harder to be creative given the social climate we find ourselves in, the the age of woke, the age of cancel culture? Does this make it harder to be creative in the arts? I, I think that if you are looking for the sort of affirmation of the fashionable art establishment then in this day and age yeah yeah there is there is a political slant to the art world you know you've only got to look at the Archibald prize to sort of see that there is a sort of undercurrent of of, of a sort of fashionable world view that underpins a lot of the work. It's reflected in the work that you see there. And, and and so if you're looking for acceptance and affirmation from that world, then that it's a woke world. It, it, it just is. But I'm not looking for that. And, and they reject me anyway. So this is the sort of, I kind of came to that conclusion a long time ago that I'm, I simply don't don't need that acceptance and and I'm not looking for it. For me, painting has always been a much more personal it has more, it has more sort of personal meaning to me as a as a as a craft, as a pursuit. My relationship to painting is is about the artists that I admire and and the the work that I've looked looked long and hard at and and has inspired me and it's it's got nothing to do with the the, the artists that are deemed fashionable and and great by the sort of the cultural elites it's more about whose work do i like what says something to me and what sort of work do i want to produce that at the that when i end you know when i'm an old man i look back and think i painted the way that was true to true to who i am and true to my belief of what what constitutes good painting and what constitutes art and you know so there is this sort of there's this external idea of what important art looks like but that's that's not necessarily the way I feel so my own opinion is you know what sort of art do I want to make well it's the sort of art that means the most to me and it's it's you've got to be true to yourself and uh and so I I can I can plug away and do do the work that means something to me I'm not dependent on that sort of acceptance and recognition from an from an from an art establishment it's not going to make or break my career because I, I do the cartoons and then I can paint the sort of work that that I like and and that um, the people who are asking me to paint paint for them are you know they appreciate it and that's really all that matters to me. The other thing about twenty twenty three is 
it feels to me that we increasingly have characters in politics that are almost parodies of themselves. You know, Trump is is the emblematic example of that. I imagine that makes satire and political satire very difficult. How do you approach people like the Trumps of this world who are those sorts of larger-than-life characters who almost put the joke on a plate for you? <laughs> yeah, well, that's it's yeah, it's true. It's true. I mean, but at the same time, I mean, you, you also got to look at somebody like Trump and think he's he's kind of a gift to cartoonists as well. I mean, he's so readily identifiable, great fun to caricature, and I mean, there are cartoonists who, was, who who all they ever did was just draw Trump in, you know, ever more grotesque sort of ways. And, you know, for them, for many years, that was sort of the key to their success, you know. So he, yes, they are often, they're almost satirical creations before you get started. But at the same time, you've got to sort of, you've got to look at them and think, well, I've got a lot to work with here, you know. Beyond satire, I mean, I, I don't know that any anything's beyond satire. As long as people are taking themselves to, you know, very seriously, you can kind of pick them apart, have fun with it. Well, that's very handy you've said that because that goes to another question on my list, which is, are there any topics which should be off limits for an editorial cartoonist? I mean, there's all sorts of, you know, rules that I suppose woke ideology has has set up around things that we, we are not allowed to satirise, you know, the trans debate, fundamentalist Islamism. A lot of these things, certain, certainly there are cartoonists who, who don't want to go there, and but there shouldn't really be any boundaries around that sort of thing I don't think I mean everything's worthy of, of ridicule and and quite often it's it's really it's it's really important that we send everything up so no I, I, I don't I don't really think there should be too many boundaries around where we can go it's sort of well documented the sort of battles my dad had when he um, found himself on the wrong side of the sort of cultural commissars who decided that he had said something unsayable and you know he needed to be hauled before the AHRC or any or things like that I mean that's just so over the top. We are paid to and expected to go places where sometimes the, the writers can't go or, you know, that's what people expect from cartoons, I think, is to go that extra step, take things to the extreme, and you have to trust that people can understand satire. I mean, this is a big problem, I think, today is that people take things so literally and satire requires of the viewer or reader to just make that mental step into okay we're you know we're in satire territory here you know this person is not now saying something so horrible that there's an understanding that your readership or or the viewers are with you on this they understand that you're now you're parodying a viewpoint but it's like Barry Humphrey said when when you have to explain satire to somebody i mean it's 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 over before you even start so that's that's a real problem that's a real problem i think we this is this we've got generations now who have sort of grown up not really recognizing satire when they see it and so every little thing offends them and they don't they don't even realize sometimes that the cartoonist is with them on something they they read it so literally that that they immediately sort of the implication is that you are some wicked person to make to, to, to frame something in such a way, but they don't realise that you're you're highlighting bigotry or you're highlighting a, a sort of horrible outlook. And it might even be the outlook that they share, but they kind of don't they don't register, you know. So it's it's a real that, that's that's something that worries me. I sort of do worry about people's ability to actually digest and understand satire when they see it. 
mentioned the problems that your old man had specifically around this this point. Preparation of the interview, I was doing some reading. Uh, he wrote a wonderful article actually for The Spectator Australia in 2016 after that uh, notorious cartoon came out on the, the subject of Indigenous affairs. Uh, mm. as, as an aside to all of our listeners, uh, Bill Leake, just one of many wonderful examples of, of contributors to The Spectator Australia. Definitely subscribe, sixteen ninety nine a month, spectator.com.au forward slash join. In that specky article, uh, I'll quote your dad. He said, this is what happens when the very concept of free speech is so misunderstood by so many that Bill Shorten and Mark Dreyfus can still call political points by sneeringly referring to freedom of speech as though it meant nothing more than the legal right to hurl abuse at strangers on the bus. You don't fix a problem by closing your eyes and imagining it has gone away. We'll never make progress unless we're able to talk openly about the scourge before us. Why do you think we're less comfortable today not having those types of conversations than potentially, say, at the start of your father's career? Oh, well, I, I, I guess it's the, the rise and, and rise of political correctness and the sort of creep of identity politics into everything and this sort of cult of victimhood that's so prevalent these days. You know, it's, it's almost like we, we've gotten to a point now where people actually are looking to take offence when they open the newspaper and, and it's virtue signaling at the end of the day. It's to be offended. Quite often people are getting offended on other people's behalf. They're not offended themselves, but they'd see something, perceive the potential for offence, and that social media has sort of exacerbated this because you can, in a very public way, sort of with your smart-ass little tweet or or something, kind of fire off something that if you, if, you, if you look through all of that twittering and tweeting and stuff, what's really underneath it all is narcissism. It's, it's people wanting to appear virtuous and sort of sticking their hand up saying, look at me, aren't I a good person? And, and aren't I an even more virtuous person than everybody else? And, and so, yeah, there's all these weird things that have crept in and, and they do all have, an, have a sort of suffocating effect on people like me who, who sort of expect that people know how to take a joke and expect that people will be able to understand what you're getting at. And, and yeah, it is, it is really important because these are issues that need to be discussed and, and to, to, to live in a climate where cartoonists, you know, have to answer to these sorts of panels and, and, and sort of, you know, make a case for why they, why they, you know, why they've, why they've drawn somebody some way and why they've made a comment. It's, it's, it's unbelievable that we're, we're even in a situation where this is, this has become the norm, but it has, I mean, it's happened to me and, you know, there you are being uh, sort of in this inquisition situation where you have to defend your right to, to see things the way you've seen them. And, and it's, the implication is that there is only one right way to interpret an issue, and that's rubbish. You know, there's always various ways to interpret something, and I, as we reserve our rights to call out, we, you have to reserve your right to sort of call out the, the, the bullshit when you see it. And, and just because all the sort of, you know, the fashionable people on Twitter feel a certain way, it doesn't mean that, that you're, you, know, you shouldn't be able to express a, a, a different opinion. You said that it's happened to you. Possibly the best example of that was the response to a cartoon that you did of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Mm. Tell us about 
that experience, both in terms of what you drew and then the response to it and, and what you reflect on on that particular, I guess we'd call it a controversy now? Yeah, well, it was um, it was quite surreal, really, but it, and it was also really unsettling. You know, I lived through my dad's really difficult difficult time when he was having to defend himself when he was accused of breaching Section 18C and and having to answer to the AHRC and and people left right and centre were sort of tearing strips off him and saying the most unbelievable things right up to you know and beyond his death and they still love to stick the boot in on Twitter whenever his his name is mentioned you see some people saying um like incredibly nasty things so it was sort of like I was aware that there were a lot of people out there who you know, hated my dad and, and hated what he stood for. And so for them, it was like an opportunity to have a crack at me, you know. Um, so I sort of knew what was behind it. A lot of people were very keen to kind of get stuck into me early on. And um, But yeah, look, I had to, I, I, I faced, what do you call it? I, I had, I faced a press council process where I had to defend the cartoon. You know, the paper had to put out a, a press release when I was deemed to have breached the standards of the press council. So I sort of failed in my in my in my efforts to defend my actions, you know. But yeah, I mean it was surreal. If if the desired effect was to shut me up or restrain my expression or something, you know, it didn't have that effect. It's really more like a badge of honor. You know, yeah. To- the source of the trouble was that you effectively used the words of Joe Biden which could be perceived to be racist you were, you were quoting him and then by putting those words to print you were you were in board the Australian and you were 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 tarred with the same brush almost and it I think you you mentioned this briefly before but it, I think about this a lot and it goes to the inability for so many people to distinguish between exposing or ridiculing a concept and being exactly. seen to be perpetuate perpetuating it. Like I, I was watching a James Bond film a week or so ago, and mm. I always laugh when James Bond is the next James Bond film comes out because you know the conversation always is, well, you know he can't be sexist anymore, he probably can't mm. be white anymore. A misogynistic character has no place in twenty twenty three, and it's like, why does every character have to be morally virtuous? Why does every thought on screen have to be to be morally correct? In fact, don't we learn from actually displaying ideas? which are troubling, which aren't necessarily moral, and you learn from those. I really struggle with this, and this isn't just in political cartoons. This is across creative fields generally that we can't make that distinction anymore. Yeah, it's it's true. And there's a certain mindset, I think, in a certain cohort of the political cartoonists where they're activists, really. A lot of them, I think, feel like their job is to save the world. <laughs> and And it's so... For them, it's like it's all about right and wrong, and and the the climate change debate for them is about you know are you on the side of people who wants to save the planet, or are you are you you just don't care, or are you you know one of these wicked people who who doesn't care, and 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 that, so that they they're highly charged positions, you know that the people are taking, and I think they've lost sight of the fact that at the end of the day we're just supposed to be stirrers, you know, sometimes just do the funny thing. I mean, another cartoonist was described as the sort of as the conscience of the nation. And I sort of think who wants to be the conscience of the nation, you know, as a cartoonist, who wants to take themselves that seriously? And who wants to be this sort of moral beacon that their cartoons must embody the the, the fashionable, correct way of thinking about the world we live in at the moment? 
that that's something to aspire to. It's it's to me that's the sort of exact opposite of what you want to be as a cartoonist. I like cartoonists who stir the pot and, you know, there's a bit of rat bag to them. What are your reflections, not just on on those types of cartoonists, but your reflections on the state of the media more generally in 2023? My feeling is that there's a hell of a lot of activists who call themselves journalists getting around the place, really. I mean, uh, yeah, look, uh, this debate about the ABC that, that's been bubbling away is is, is great because... Some people have pointed out that, you know, opinion, what used to be opinion has sort of seeped into general reporting. And there's, and it's not just, it's not even just that, you know, it's, it's about the omission of the, the, the whole story. You know, you only ever get parts of it presented oftentimes. And, and, you know, everything is slanted a certain way. I mean, it's so, it's, it's so damaging. I mean, especially with the climate stuff, you know, we're only ever presented with this sort of climate alarmist sort of angle on everything. It's not the full picture, but this is having a very real impact on the way the countries of the world are being run. So it's really a big problem. I mean, Mm -hmm. you look at the um, Steve Coonan book and he talks about this sort of thing that the media has a lot to answer for here because catastrophizing cells, you know, what do they say? It grabs eyeballs and that sort of thing. But but it's not the full picture, and it and that that is such a shame because we should be presented with all sides of an argument and to make up our own minds. So yeah, I mean, I think that it is a polarized landscape, the media landscape today. There's no doubt about that, and it's and it's also a very combative sort of environment. You know, people have sort of moved further and further. I think to to different extremes and. At, at taking pot shots at one another, and I suppose it's all like everything. It's sort of been sort of supercharged by social media. So, yeah, I've, uh, on, on, specifically on that, mm. are we going to just keep getting more and more polarized? Is there any way that we can both maybe let's look at it in the context of Australia as opposed to the West? Is Australia just going to keep getting more and more politically and ideologically divided, or is this a do you see this as being a, an unusual moment in history? Mate, I really don't know. <laughs> I um I wonder if it's a bit of a case of the pendulum swinging a certain way and you know I suppose maybe 5 years ago virtue signaling was a new concept but I think everybody sort of knows what that is now when they when they when they hear the expression you know they understand what that is so I think there's an awareness of the kind of excesses of of wokeness and I think the laughable aspects of wokeness and ex- extreme political kind of positions are uh, have become more apparent to people, and 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 certainly more and more prominent people are kind of not afraid to to, to speak up about things. You you look at um, J.K. Rowling and mm. uh, people like that who are prepared to sort of stick their heads above the parapet and and put their foot down when they see a, a sort of assault on common sense that we're seeing all the time. I think that does give people a sense that their common sense it, it's still there somewhere underneath it all. So maybe we will get our bearings and 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 kind of capture capture a little bit about who we were when we were a sort of common sense Australia where we we could disagree and still be friends. That 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 is that is a foreign concept to so many people now, which is just 
Such a shame. But look, at the same time, I'm 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 also pretty pessimistic about it. I suppose it doesn't it doesn't feel like it's uh, the the climate is getting any sort of friendlier. And and you look at some of the big debates that are going on at the moment. It's almost like there's a deliberateness to the. It's almost like the stoking of division is what people are actually sort of out to do. I think a lot of the time. And here we have here we have this voice debate, which is sort of presented as as a call for unity but you have to be on one side you know but but it still comes down to a binary choice but it's presented as this opportunity for unity but you have to pick the right choice you know it's sort of that it's that in itself is is a sort of divisive uh you know process that is the natural cynicism in you coming out i'm going to try and end on a a and an optimistic note johannes you are a very humble man uh, i want you to ditch that humility for for my final question what one cartoon have you drawn that you are most proud of and why? <laughs> if I look at the cartoon that has been the one that got, well, the most popular cartoon I think I've ever drawn was was the probably the cartoon I drew during COVID where I had a chicken crossing the road and um and on the other side were a couple of cops waiting for the chicken and and they had the, the you know they had the notepad out ready to ready to find this chicken and they were and and the one of the coppers was saying this better be good you know so um uh, that that one that one I still have I still get orders for that one so so that one must have struck a chord with people but I think the one that I like and I think of course it was an extreme it was. I took. I took things to the extreme, of course, in the cartoon, and and you know, the world that I drew has not has not necessarily come to pass. But I still think that it captured something. Was the cartoon I drew also during the COVID period, where I I sort of drew a couple of guys, you know, in loincloths walking through a desert wasteland with the ruins of a city in the background and an aer- the sort of skeleton of an aeroplane slowly being covered with sand and some sort of marauding Mad Max type figures off in the distance. And, um, and one of the guys was one guy saying, um, well, on the plus side, we sure beat that coronavirus. <laughs> and I, I mean, I, I sort of thought that that, that struck a chord, I think. And, and, and I still sort of like that one, even though I, I, you know, I certainly took things out there, but. I think the there is again, I think you've got the essential it, truth. Well, it's a, it's a different world, isn't it? The world has changed since COVID and, and it will never quite be the same. There's so many aspects of our lives that have been affected there and, and we're still kind of unravelling and finding out just how just how much overreach there was and and how kind of over the top the response was. So I like that one. Uh, <laughs> I do we like will, that one. <laughs> we will uh, include links to both of those in the show notes uh, and I did like the little subtle plug that you can order your work. In addition to seeing Johannes's work in The Australian, you can check out his website. You can browse and purchase signed prints of his daily editorial cartoons, of which those are two cracking examples. I think they make for a cracking prezi. I'm already eyeing off a few for Father's Day, Johannes. Thank you very much for coming on, Australiana, mate. I think, to your point, I think you do get to the essential truth of issues and you do it in a way which has such clarity and and humor and uh and insight i think it's a very rare thing in the australian media landscape so keep doing what you're doing thanks so much will it's been a pleasure thank you very much for listening to this episode of australiana 
If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating and a review. And if you really enjoyed the show, head to spectator.com.au forward slash join. Sign up for a digital subscription today and you'll get your first month absolutely free.